Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Hoburn. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Tashinsky. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that shortly after writing an essay on why writers shouldn't publish anonymously, Anthony Trollope published a book anonymously. Oh, <laughs> called out a mere 130 years yeah. later. <laughs> Not a moment too soon. So I've just sort of inherited from a friend who decided he was never going to read them. The complete works of Anthony Trollope. Oh, and nice. um, and he's giving them to me in bits, and he seems to have given me the three least known Anthony Trollope. So this is in the introduction to Nina Balatka, which was. <laughs> if you want to get into Trollope, I would say probably don't start with that one. It's not an entry level, no, no. no. Anyway, this fact, <laughs> Nina Balatka in the introduction, it just mentioned that he wrote an essay in 1865, and he said. A man should always dare to be responsible for the work which he does and should be ready to accept the shame, rebuffs, ridicule or the indifference which will attend bad work. And it's all about how, mm. you know, put your name to something. Mm. And then he didn't put his name to Nina Balatka. And I do have some sympathy hmm. that if your name is a trollop that you don't want to put it on everything. <laughs> <that you're... laughs> Who here has read uh, Trollope? I've read The Start of Barchester Towers. Okay. Did you read it in preparation for this podcast? I certainly did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> read the first 50 pages. Nice. Like I've done quite a lot of books over the years just because of this podcast. Yeah. I just kind of started reading, got an idea and gone, well, I think I got an idea of this guy's entire oeuvre now. How, well, if how you, you haven't got to the end, you don't you... know about the robots in it. <laughs> what? <laughs> so Anna's read some Trollope, Andy, you must have done. I'm actually a Trollope virgin. I, honestly, I said to my wife last night, that if anyone likes Anthony Trollope, Andy would like Anthony Trollope. Is it because he writes about ecclesiastical uh, <laughs> matters in the 19th century? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I will. Right up your street. I don't know if it is. I think that's a missed call on Andy. You think? Yeah, I do. I think I'm, I slightly prefer that kind of literature. It feels like it's in between what you would like. It's, it feels to me like it's halfway between Dickens and Jane Austen. It is. But mm. the thing about Anthony Trollope, he's not as widely read as I think he should be. He's frowned on in a lot of circles because he was just a machine yeah, of output yeah. wasn't he 47 novels loads of stories his routine was getting up every morning 5 30 writing for three solid hours he set put a watch in front of him made himself write 250 words every 15 minutes and he didn't have word counts that time so i don't no. he must have incorporated counting he, the words he must have counted the pages because you just yeah. turned out so much stuff i love it i think that is exactly how i would write if i was writing novels i actually thought reading about him and this is not a negative thing at all i thought there's quite a lot of you in him he's quite annoying <laughs> as we all, like we all, we all write books as someone who you know foodles around a bit Toys with the margins, uh, you know, as in, and you just see, like, in the time you've spent foodling around with the margins, Anthony Trollope will have written 16 pages <laughs> of prose. And like, he had a portable desk made. I love this. So he could write on trains. Yeah. And if he was going on board a ship, he would meet up with the ship's carpenter to arrange proper writing conditions. <laughs> oh, really? For the, that's pretty ritzy. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. cool. But the reason he had to do it was because he was, uh, and I'm simplifying here, postman. Um, 
<laughs> you are simplifying. Yeah. <laughs> but he wrote in the morning because he had a full-time job at the post office for yeah. about, what, how long? Decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was yeah. 60s. He's really senior. Yeah. He was really senior in the post office. Yeah, well, if you weren't there that long. And it's that really cool fact, which is the only thing I knew about him, which is that he's basically responsible for the reason that we have post boxes yeah. all over the UK. Possibly he spotted it in France. I don't think he ever claimed that he invented it, but he certainly recommended it to the government. Yeah. And they used to be green, but now they're red. That's and... the thing, though. Like, he is responsible for that, I suppose, but they did exist in France. They did yeah. exist in Belgium. The stamp had been invented about 30 or 40 years earlier. It feels like we might have got there anyway, even without Maybe. him. Totally, but oh, he's yeah. the one who did. <laughs> yeah. Hey, here's a cool um, <laughs> quote just to sort of really hammer home what a workaholic he was. Uh, he said, there is no human bliss equal to 12 hours of work with only six hours in which to do it. Um, um, he was a bit like bankers in 1990s in the UK because his motto was no day without a line. Hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk a little about Fanny Trollope? Sure. Yeah. His mum. Yeah. Um, yes, please. So his parents were very interesting people. Um, mm. Just briefly, his dad was a complete uh, failure in life. Sounds harsh, but How it is true. Imagine Gosh. someone in a podcast in 200 years saying I that know, about you. I know, and they will. I hope they will. I dream of them doing that, you know. But his father, his father had law work which had failed, then a farm which had failed, and yeah. he, de he decided finally to write a thing called the Encyclopedia Ecclesiastica, which would define all the ecclesiastical terms that had ever existed. Oh. And he, he, by the time he died, he was still only on the letter D. It yeah. was, oh, you to know. be honest, church <laughs> is quite yeah, a long oh, one. Huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amen. There's another biggie oh, right yeah. at the top. Mm -hmm. Chasuble. I mean, you can see why Chancel. he. You can see, you can see yeah. why he struggled. Christian, you know. Catholic. Oh, baby Jesus. Starting with baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that was his dad. Like, yeah. Tricky, tricky time. Um, but his mum was a successful author. And yeah. mega successful. Mm. And she made her name by writing a book called The Domestic Manners of the Americans. Because she'd gone to America, set up this business venture, which had completely collapsed and been a disaster. And uh, But then she wrote this book, which was basically just incredibly rude yes. about oh. everyone in the USA. It was very, very, very snobbish. And um, it became a massive success. She said of people living in New York that they were bullying, struggling, crafty, enterprising, industrious, swaggering, drinking, boasting and money getting. Uh, but then enemy of the podcast, Mark Twain. Thank you. <laughs> he really loved her. And he was like uh, basically saying, well, you know, she's telling the truth. That's what we're like. Oh. Fair enough. Fair play. So he liked her. So I now don't like her. Great. Okay. Thank you. Sort of <laughs> keeping my beef going throughout the century. One thing I noticed from reading the first 50 pages of Barchester Towers yeah. is how hackish he is with names. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, Anna, with the ones that you've read. Mm -hmm. but... I've only read The Way We Live Now. Well, the like the first two, a couple of the first characters are, I think, the policemen, and they're called Lambda Mu Nu and Omicron Pi, where he's basically just taken Greek letters and turned them into names. Oh, right. Uh, but what he used to do quite a lot is do that thing where, I suppose Dickens did it a bit, where you just take whatever attribute your character has and just call them that. Oh, yeah, Dickens was, yeah. Right. So um, yeah, yeah. This, in his novel, Miss Mackenzie, uh, it's about a young woman who's pursued by three men who are called Handcock, Rub and Ball. What? <laughs> and there was another Hand man. Handcock. Handcock. <laughs> and there's another man in it where who he's not a suitable suitor for this woman. Okay. And he's called Mr. Frigidy. Wow. Wow. I mean, they're so on the nose. It takes it's... a bit of the suspense out of it, doesn't it? Yeah, if I you... think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did... Um, I wonder if I can give you some names of characters and you can tell me what they 
did in Brilliant. the novels. Oh, okay, yep, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, so Dick Rabbit. Um, ended up in prison for shagging rabbit holes. <laughs> was he, was he, yeah, <laughs> had lots of kids. Breeded a lot. Nice. No, he was the leader of a hunt. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. yeah, good. Uh, Samuel Nickham. Policeman. Police. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. He wasn't a policeman, but he found evidence against some people oh. who'd been poisoning okay. animals. Okay. I was going to say shoplifter, and I've only just realised that nicking them is something that shoplifters do and policemen do. Sure. Oh. I nick them. No, I nick them. We're on opposite sides. How confusing. Gosh, yeah. Food for thought. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Oliver Crumblewit. Stand up. Stand up comedian. Yeah. Someone who thinks they're funny. So like an, uh, someone, dad, a dad joke uh, oh, to call yeah. back to the previous yeah. episode yeah. Uh, character. Um, no, he was a phrenologist. Crumble. So just oh, like really? witless person, uh, I guess. Yeah. He was slugging off phrenology. Okay. Uh, and Joe Thurabug. <laughs> Proctologist. No, he was a brewer, of course. Oh, brewer. Nice. I was going to say the bunghole in the yeah. sherry. That's right. Yeah. Did you, sorry, just while we're quickly on um, Barchester Towers, have you ever got to a bit in the book where he injects himself as a narrator? Because that's something he apparently loves to do. So he does it twice. He pops in. He pops in. So, for example, there's a sentence that comes in that book where it says, How easily she would have forgiven and forgotten the archdeacon's suspicions had she but heard the whole truth from Mr. Arabin. But then where would have been my novel? So oh, he sort of just says, lovely. I didn't yeah, that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And then right at the end, he says, uh, the end of a novel, like the end of a children's dinner party, must be filled with sweet meats and sugar plums. Obviously alluding maybe to oh. a nice happy ending. Yes, yeah. followed by mm. tears, um, someone being sick, <laughs> uh, people being dragged home screaming. <laughs> Nits being spread. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah he does all, do yeah. that self-consciously a little bit. Yeah, sometimes he'll be like, she's my favourite, actually. She's lovely. Mm. I think um, that's good. I mean, Jane Austen does that all the time, just sort of pops her head around the curtain and says, hello, and then pops back. Right. I like it. Um, have you heard of his novel, The Fixed Period? Mm. No. This is very weird. So this was his, I think, only venture into sci-fi. Cool. Where it's set in 1980 oh. on a fictional island in the Southern Hemisphere called Britannula. And the main point of the story is that it has compulsory euthanasia for anyone between the age of 67 and 68. That's Ooh. the idea. It also features a futuristic cricket match. Um, a bit harsh, you can't get to the best age. Right, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, he was sick of all the innuendo. Right. <laughs> There's a steam tricycle which can go at 25 miles an hour. So it's still cool. rooted in the 19th century. But, get this... Trollope died at the age of 67 and a half. He didn't do much of the sci-fi, but basically I think his novels were essentially a Marvel... Marvel? Marvel? Marvel, sorry. Andrew Marvel. An Andrew Marvel universe. 17th century laureate. Yeah. Yes. That's so funny. Had they, but world enough in time, they would, is that him? Yep, very good. Had they, then they would have written a Marvel comic because he basically did that. He created a universe. Ah, right. Oh, lovely. Yeah, And I think this kind of explains why he was able to churn things out so much as well as the fact that when you read them, there are a lot of extra words. But like the Barsager Chronicles, you could lose a lot. Have you ever read, sorry to, this is a digression but have you ever read the Womble books no. no I was reading the Womble books to my daughter and all the way through it's like and then the Womble went to the park and picked up some litter they picked up an umbrella a bag of crisps oh, and this and they just fill up all the wow. sentences with that's just great. lists of nonsense that's oh, your word right. count for the day yeah. that's Trollope thinking right I put in 16 adjectives <laughs> to describe this table yeah. <laughs> that's fine I can knock off for the next five minutes 
can't believe you're reading the Womble books. Because I, I thought it was just a TV show. You're the guy who's like, you know, the books <laughs> oh, are actually the novelizations of the Wombles are actually really, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the books came before the TV show. I'm sure they? they did, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So the Trollope Cinematic Universe. The Cinematic yeah, yeah. Universe. So it embosses yeah. you. <laughs> it's really fun. So yeah. I've only read one, and actually it's The Way We Live Now, which is in the universe, but my husband happens to have read quite a few more. And it, he says it's fun because characters pop in from other places. Lovely. I and love And they'll it. have matured quite a lot. So yeah, yeah. that vicar who was quite annoying when he was 25 is now 40 Brilliant. and he's a bit wiser. I uh, reckon that he had hyperfantasia. Oh, yeah. Which is, so I have aphantasia, which means I can't imagine things. Mm-hmm. But some people have hyperfantasia where you really can't imagine anything. It's like just an incredible story going on in your head. And sometimes mm. you don't even realize that it's in your head. And he used to say that his main work that he did was when he was daydreaming. Mm. So, you know, he would churn out these words, but actually the rest of the day, he'd just be thinking, oh, I wonder what my characters would be doing now. Mm. And when he came to write them down, it was pretty easy for him because he was just, this is what I remember them doing. I think he almost says that the nice. plot is kind of not even really important. It's mm. just, it's about the characters exactly as you say. Yeah. Um, I want to know what his legs were like, because I think he might have had a fantastic pair of legs. Okay. Go on. Yeah, well, your reasoning. he was all over the UK. Uh, for his work for the post office. Okay. It was sent to Ireland, first of all, which is where he started writing. Yeah. And basically, he had to work out the routes for postmen, and he rode across the countryside. He did about 40 miles a day riding across the countryside. It feels like the horse would have good legs. No, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. He'd have a great bum. Um, but he was a member of a thing called the Tramp Society, which was a rambler's club across southeast England. They just walked huge distances oh, every really? time they met up. Yeah, so I think... I think his lower half might have been incredibly fit. Well, wow. in um, support, I think of that. Do you know what the hardest day's work he ever did in his life was? And that's a high bar for Trollope. Oh, no. It was walking. And it was when he was posted to Glasgow and he wanted to review how postman's jobs, basically. And postmen in Glasgow were having to go up and down tenement blocks, sometimes oh, to just post a letter to one person. Mm. And he walked the full Glasgow postman's route up yeah. and down stairs on his beat and came back to the post office in London and was like, hey, those guys have it really rough. We need yeah. to sort it out. Yes. His second ever novel sold 140 copies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It did not sell. What and was the, that one? Uh, it was, they were both set in Ireland, his first two. I think and he published sort of in Ireland, in, and published in Ireland. Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. But the publisher had to resort to adverts saying, do you know who this guy's mum is? This guy's mum is Fanny Trollope. <laughs> <laughs> Can you... <laughs> Which is so embarrassing as yeah. a young debut novelist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what a quote for the front of the book. Do you know who his mum is? <laughs> <laughs> Stop the podcast! Stop the podcast! Hi, everybody. We want to let you know we are sponsored today by Squarespace. Squarespace. Even when said in the style of a magician like Andy did. I mean, it is magic, Squarespace, it seems to me. Because (laughs) I always think it's going to be impossible to make my own website. Probably I need to be able to code stuff. Probably I need to understand how computers work. Well, that is not the case. Because if you go to Squarespace, it makes making a website so, so easy. That is true. It really is. It's all in one. If you are starting out a business, for example, you want to create a beautiful website, you want to engage with your audience... There are all these things that Squarespace allows you to do. It's really fantastic. So you might want custom merch. You might want to run your own online store. There are all these different flexible templates. So every single kind of website you could want to make, Squarespace has an option for you. And if you want to make a website with Squarespace, then what you need to do is go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your delicious, beautiful website, (laughs) go to squarespace.com forward slash fish and you will save 
save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It's as easy as saying Alakazam. <laughs> so go to squarespace.com, try that trial for free, then go to squarespace.com slash fish and save 10% off your first website or domain purchase. Okay, on with the podcast. On with the show. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that in 2008, a TV channel spent the day rescheduling shows so that millions of people in India could continue to watch a live broadcast of a man trying to kill another man using nothing but his mind. Okay. And so, it took longer than expected. Is it like when a football match goes into extra time oh, and you have to cancel yes, the news afterwards? Exactly. It's, like, it's like that tennis. Do you remember? It was it Mahut Isner? Mahut Isner. Which went on. It was at Wimbledon several, like 10 years ago now, and it, yeah. it went on. They played like 70 games each. Yeah, they won. It was, it was something, something like crackers. That. Yeah. It was kind of that. So basically, and Mahut and Isner, I imagine, got closer to death than the person <laughs> that was trying to be killed here. Well, not quite, actually. Ooh. So, okay. At that time, there was a politician who said out loud that she thought that someone was attacking her mentally using tantric powers which is okay. you know when we talk about tantric sex and all that there's a side of it which is to do with the mind and you can supposedly attack people if you're using the dark practices of it right Ooh. so as a result there was a tv show where skeptics <laughs> and tantra practitioners <laughs> were brought together on the show it was called tantric power versus science and while on the show this guy who was called pandit surinder sharma claimed that he could kill someone within minutes using nothing but his mind now, the person who was sitting on the panel with him was a guy called Sanal Edamaruku. Is he representing science in this? He is the president of the Rational International okay. Group. Yeah. He says, you can't do that. You think you can do that? Do it to me now. And the guy says, okay, fine, I'll do it to you now. That's annoying when they call your bluff like that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So he says, do it now. So yeah. they say, all right, let's do this. The host of the show is going, all right, let's do this. <laughs> so Le Legally, very tricky water for the channel and the program to be in. Exactly. Because yeah, I'm thinking about all the um, forms we have to fill in on QI if you just you know, strike a match. <laughs> in the studio. Yeah. You very rarely use dark tantra on QI. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happens is, is this guy, Sharma, gets up and yeah. he starts focusing his mind on him. It's clearly not working. The rational guy is sort of giving laughs and so on. So uh, Sharma comes over, he starts sprinkling water on him as an intimidation tactic. He starts ruffling his hair like, oh, oh, wow, the big guns are yeah, coming out now. Uh, he covers his eyes. Uh, it was all that stuff. But then, <laughs> and this is where it gets a bit desperate, yeah. he suddenly presses his fingers down onto his forehead and steadily really pushes and pushes. And he has to be called out because basically you will kill me because you're trying to crush my skull basically right. so yeah, he has yeah, to go yeah. back to his seat and he has to do it with his mind now at this point the show's meant to be ending <laughs> but they say it's not done yet so the show <laughs> continues and the next show is cancelled and at this point word is getting around so people are tuning in and tuning in after a couple of hours the guy's exhausted Sharma's exhausted and he says but i'm not done yet let's meet again this evening and this evening, I will do the ultimate destruction ceremony and kill you. What is going through his mind when he's yeah. saying, I'm going to do that? Like yeah. saying, I'm sure I can think of an ultimate destruction ceremony in the two hours between yeah. the broadcast. Like, what is, it? what is his plan? But then I think his plan probably is to not turn up. And then go, oh, sorry, I was killing some other person. They go to another school. You wouldn't know them. Yeah. So they do it at night. There's, it's performed under an altar in an open night sky. They've got all the cameras there. And he tries and tries and tries. And obviously, the guy who's the rational guy is laughing his ass off the whole time. So it didn't work out. But this, you know, just to remind you, is 2008. And this was broadcast live. And Gosh. according to many reports, 
some say hundreds of millions, obviously a huge population in mm. India, but you know, millions tuned in to see a man killed live on TV, probably knowing yeah. he wasn't going to be, but wanted to see what happened. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you guys. Yep. If you were on that TV show and you were next to a tantric master and they said, I could kill someone with my mind, would you have the courage to say, no, you can't do it to me? Yeah. You definitely would. Yeah. There wouldn't be a tiny bit of doubt that, like, I, I'm pretty sure you can't. Well, once but... he started, I'd shit my pants. But, yeah, <laughs> I would probably... Uh, I'd feel, I would feel fairly confident that that wouldn't happen. No, but you can't be fairly confident. Okay, you I would have... I would be 100% certain that that wouldn't happen. You'd be up for it, okay. I would be... I would be pretty confident, but I would think to myself, I'd be so annoyed if I have a heart attack and die, <laughs> <Yeah>. unrelatedly. <laughs> when yeah. I went yeah. to... I was in Bhutan, and I went to the Tiger's Nest Monastery... And there's a little bit where you have to jump from one bit to the other and you're going over a sheer drop of thousands of feet. Mm. And the step is basically just a step. You know, it's a step that you do every single day and it's no problem. Oh my God. But all the way through, I was thinking, if I fall now, oh what a fucking idiot. Yeah. You know, mm. what an idiot yeah. I am for doing that. Yeah. And I suppose it's that kind of exactly. thought. Exactly. Like... Yeah. And the pressure of the TV cameras will make you think, you know, this is a very public forum. I can understand. I'm very impressed by the skeptic. You'd and he's feel embarrassed right. for him. You'd start wanting to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I would be trying you'd to fake him. Do you think you'd fake it, Dan? Fake it. <laughs> well, it would be really fun to to draw the death tantra dude out by pretending to die and then going, ah! And that would be great. That's um, a good point. No, I've never, I've never heard of this. Um, I think of tantra. Yeah, as primarily a sexual thing. Oh, no, I'm thinking. Pervert. I'm thinking about Sting. Yes, who claimed <laughs> in the in the nineties that he could have sex for five hours because of tantra, yeah. his tantric skills. He says he never said that. I don't know if he you... does now, but that's <laughs> right. Yeah, he says Bob Geldof spread that rumor. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then he said, "Oh, I said five hours, but that includes dinner and a movie, followed by some begging." You know, he's got some very funny jokes about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that was and the movie is <laughs> Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the, Rings. <laughs> the entire trilogy. <laughs> no, but that's I don't know anything about tantra really, or the, the idea of and I gather it's more of a philosophy or a set of philosophies, and it's from it's lots, of different, lots of different it's religions yeah. have elements of tantra yeah, or definitely yeah. so it's sort of spread across all these different schools of thought so, there's no yeah. one thing and you know when I say you know the dark side or whatever you know that's so rare it's like a it's not really even a thing we'll get letters people saying that's right. not a thing right 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 yeah well it's based in Hinduism yeah, yeah. Uh, when we say lots of different religions and it's not its own belief system within Hinduism as far as I can tell it's like a a series of practices which seem to exist in lots of strands of Hinduism. Yeah, it's almost like non-Orthodox Hinduism, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. In fact, I did read things saying the whole point of it was to subvert Hinduism and encourage lots of things that Hinduism mm. does not. Like, I think there's one where you're encouraged to have the special tantric fivesome, which is like eating meat, drinking wine. Right. Um, <laughs> 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 you ever had a fivesome? Yeah, well, I've had a bit of meat and drank a bit of wine, yeah. Coming to the party just I didn't naked, the... going, why is everyone dressed? <laughs> God, that looks delicious. I, <laughs> I've, had a, I've had a foursome. I didn't have the sherry at the end. <laughs> which would have been, you know. To be fair, sex is the last one. Oh, okay. So, okay. Think, so it's um, like a date. They're describing a date. Uh, it's got to be a date. <laughs> what are the previous four? And is, is there an order? Netflix. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. It's drinking, eating, movie, begging, <laughs> sex. <laughs> so the five are alcohol, meat, fish, grain, 
and sex. Okay. Uh, well, you're very full at that point, so it's not very pleasant. We but do that five at home, but the fifth one is always headache. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's really annoying. Um, but the idea is violating all these Hindu taboos. I see. And I think that's called left-handed tantra. So there's left-handed tantra and right-handed tantra, and left-handed tantra is the sex one. I'm left-handed. Well, that doesn't surprise me, Andy. No, no, no. It's all starting to come together. I always do left-handed tantra because it feels like someone else is doing oh, no. it. <laughs> There's no thousand-year-old tradition we can be trusted with. Um, Other things that are done in tantra traditions that yeah. are non-sexual okay. for the right-handed. Living in cemeteries. If you want that. Oh. Um, and smearing cremation ashes on your body. So these are all agory rituals. Um, do you say agory? Yeah. Because it sounds quite gory. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Agory I, I tradition. Was, yeah. Yes. I was, I was just mishearing. No, that's very good. Maybe that it's a fun play on words because it is very dark. <laughs> um, they smoke a lot of marijuana. Not too dark. They drink a lot of alcohol and they meditate on top of corpses. I got some good news for you, Dan. Yeah. Um, so the meditating on a corpse, mm. there are quite a lot of rules okay. about the kind of corpse that you can meditate on. Uh, ideally, it would be someone who died from drowning, lightning strikes, snake bites, something like that. You are allowed to kill the person oh. before you meditate on top of them, but you shouldn't really meditate on top of a man with a beard or on top of a wife guy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Anyone who's hen you shouldn't be doing. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Dan, so, you're in the clear. <laughs> I am safe and sound, guys. <laughs> wow. Um, but what about a clean shaven bad boy like me, James? <laughs> am I in the firing line for getting oh, meditated so, on? Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Um, I read an amazing way of if someone, if so, let's say we are on that show and we have said yes, consenting to Sharma trying to kill us with his mind. Mm. One way of getting him out of your mind and shaking off the bad juju that's inside there is something that was practiced by a guy called Victor Korchnoi, who's a chess player. Yeah. Now, we spoke many yeah. uh, episodes ago about a very famous chess championship in 1978, and there were two Russian grandmaster chess players, Karpov against Korchnoi. And basically, Korchnoi, as he was sitting there, had uh, a guy in the audience who was who was mentally trying yeah, to ruin yeah, his yeah. game, get into his head. It was a, it was a weirdest chess game ever, yeah. right? Korchnoi eventually brings in two people who practice the idea of all this mind power stuff. And he genuinely did this during the course of the game to get rid of all the bad thoughts that are in his head. You do a handstand so that you can shake it out using the gravity that's pulling no. down to the earth all yeah. the bad vibes. Makes so yeah. if ever you're in a space where you think you're being infiltrated in your mind, do a handstand. If you believe, though... Yeah, I mean that's the is, we're sort of skirting around the psychosomatic thing. If you yeah, believe yeah. that someone is in the crowd getting into your head, which he did, then they yeah. they're already in there. Yeah, and yeah. he no, was it's in too there. late. Like that's exactly it. He believed that guy was in there. Did yeah. he win? He lost. Well, Only then, just by well, one game. Okay. He was down, and then he did the handstand thing, and he came back for like a few games, oh. and then he lost the final game. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't shake that last bit out. <laughs> <did he>? <laughs> <laughs> this just reminded me of another interesting Hindu sect, which I've been fond of for a while: the Naga Sadhus. Ooh. Okay. Which well, we've talked about the naked sadhus, which who are just naked all the time. Sadhus. Uh, naked <laughs> sadhus, yeah. So a lot of this is about asceticism and renouncing everything, and they have very strict exercise routines. So they're they're very fit, but they have long beards, but they have no clothes. They they also smear themselves in ashes. 
I think I think there seems to be a mm, thing. Yeah. Um, but they were great fighters back in the day. So they've been around for many hundreds, probably thousands of years. Um, and they were military men. So in 19th century reports, they wore nothing but a belt and they'd have like ammunition and flints and guns wow. hanging off their belts. Wow, like Batman. Yeah, but nude Batman. Yes, yeah. yeah, so is he? Because mm. he normally is wearing the full the Batman un- the outfit. Isn't he's he? in fact a bit too covered up, really. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just mean like the utility the belt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yes, absolutely. They've got the utility belt, and that's all you need, really. Um, and they were great military leaders. And in fact, there was one in the 18th century who commanded over 20,000 men. In fact, quite a few of them commanded that many. And in the battles that the British East India Company had when they were trying to colonize India, they played a huge role. And bizarrely, they were often mercenaries. So they often fought for different sides, which is weird given that they renounce all possessions. So I don't know what you're using, all that money you're getting paid. Well, you've got to, you know, to just... there, are, there are incidental expenditures <laughs> and, you, you know, you want to have something for a rainy day. You want and... a really nice belt. <laughs> <laughs> that beard oil's very pricey. Um... <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the last thing that British soldiers going to the Crimean War saw was Queen Victoria throwing a shoe at them. (laughs) (laughs) And stay out. Um. (laughs) Um, No, this is a good luck thing. It's been a good luck thing since the 16th century at least. Uh, And Queen Victoria, when she got married, she had shoes thrown after her. So she obviously had this idea that it was good luck. And there is an 1854 sketch from Punch magazine that shows her throwing a shoe at her soldiers as they go off for the Crimean War. It's very, I'd never heard this tradition at all. Shoe chucking for luck no. I just mm. never ever heard it but she did it a lot she did it in 1855 she chucked shoes into Balmoral Castle yeah. again for luck and that was a and is it she takes one of her own shoes off or does she take an extra shoe in her handbag great question good question oh no yeah so the first one she's throwing it off from where is she she's standing on a balcony that's it's, right so okay so she's at home she's probably in slippers anyway so <laughs> she could do that with a shoe and you don't want to chuck a really heavy shoe in case it hits someone yeah well, no, that must... from a balcony seems quite risky that's going to be my question do we know where the shoe is because I couldn't, I couldn't find it. What, in the my shoe, yeah, the shoe. Oh, I don't know how many yeah, of Queen Victoria's yeah, shoes are surviving. Yeah, but the shoe, uh, lots of shoe traditions. Hiding shoes in the walls of your building—that was yeah. another big one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, what was that? Is that for good luck or yes, just it is. for a rainy day? It's to ward off evil. Ah, evil hates evil. shoes. Evil, yes. Uh, the, the <laughs> Northampton made all basically all the shoes made in the UK came from Northampton for centuries. Really? Yeah, 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 it was it was Chew Town. That's why the football oh. team's called the Cobblers. Oh, is it? Uh, I didn't know they were. But they've got a thing called the Hidden Shoe Index at the Northampton Museum. I read it was called the Concealed Shoe Index, which made me wonder what CSI Northampton would be like. <laughs> Very strong. <laughs> I don't know which is the true name. It goes back to the fifties, though. But the oldest shoe they've got or found in a building dates back to 1308. Wow. That was concealed in a building. Yeah. That's not going to be wearable, is it? No. Is this related to... Because we haven't mentioned cats being found in buildings. That's a thing, isn't it? That is people it? people would bury their yeah, dead cats. Yeah, warlocks so cat cat as well. And frogs, yes. Yeah. Presumably yeah. that was for good luck. I think it's to also attract or distract or deter witches. Okay. We're back to the evil thing. Distract. Um. Is that my cat? Oh, that's what I was doing. Maybe one of the most famous shoe throwing incidents was when George Bush uh, had two shoes thrown at him, in fact, in 2008 yes. by an Iraqi reporter. And actually, I was re reading what George Bush said when he was asked about it afterwards. And I thought, 
you know, there was a lot of criticism of George Bush at the time, understandably, but he said, I oh, know I wasn't offended. Um, that we're in a democracy. It's fr this is freedom for you. You're allowed to do this kind of thing. Um, which is very mature of him. Well done. Yeah. The guy yeah. was then imprisoned and, and, yeah. and I think beaten very badly. Uh, yeah. So he I lost a lot of teeth, I think. I think it was by the Iraqi authorities rather than by everyone else. But yes, yeah. Yeah. It was a, the sentiment, bang on. They did a massive shoe statue, didn't they? Statue. Did yeah. They? That's very nice. <laughs> Wait, who's they in Iraq? In Iraq, yeah. But it was done, I think it was done at a university or something and they had to take it down because it was seen as being political. And When they tore it down, did they run over and beat it with miniature statues of Saddam Hussein? <laughs> <laughs> I love there's a museum in America that has as one of its exhibits a replica of the shoe. Oh, really? Mm. Not even the shoe. Couldn't well, get, no, couldn't get the the shoes were destroyed by the CIA. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I've never sounded more conspiracist wing that whack guy. Sorry, but they actually were. As yeah. in, because I think they didn't want the shoes to become martyrs. Do the CIA um, need to be drafted in to destroy shoes? I reckon you could get it was the, the intern. FBI. Maybe or the it was Secret it, Service. It was maybe. Definitely, it was the Secret Sorry, it was the Secret Service. Um, but it became big business as well all these rival cobblers in the area started claiming oh yes that's our shoe um oh, really yeah, yeah. and uh, the the throw the thrower uh mundadar al-zaidi he was offered some a couple of hands in marriage by various people who said um my, I'll, i'd like you to marry my daughter and then in 2009 he was doing an event the following so the year after he did the thing guess what happened he got a Someone, shoe thrown at him he got a shoe thrown at him <gasps> yeah it was a real circle of life thing come up and yeah. Yeah. by bush or not by bush <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but bush has had more shoes thrown at him since there's a whole i mean it became a thing post that event generally <laughs> oh, no. there's a whole wikipedia page where it's a uh, shoe throwing incidents uh, it's called <laughs> mm. and gives you a big timeline and it really picks up after old mate bush was yeah right. was attacked yeah. There's a famous incident as well. Queen Elizabeth, the late queen, in Australia. Second. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, she threw a shoe at Philip um, when they were in Australia. Wow. It was one of the only moments where a fight, I think, in fact, the only incident in which a fight was seen between Philip and the queen. You're she joking. threw a tennis racket at him as well. Yeah. A tennis racket? Yeah. And oh. the Aussies were filming from a distance and they were like, geez, what did we just see? Because we've never seen anything like that before. And so one of the PR people had to come out for the queen and say, what are you guys doing? Um, with a British accent, though, not an Aussie <laughs> accent. Um, and then the queen came out and she apologized and she said, where do you want me as if to say please don't use that i'm here now as an embarrassing wow. apology uh for you witnessing that but possibly she was wishing him good luck <laughs> with whatever effect. lucky tennis racket as well yeah, yeah all of your lucky clothes are out on the lawn and, uh... <laughs> that's so funny wow james have you ever seen i'm asking james specifically this for a reason have you ever seen a panty tree <laughs> we know the reason. A panty tree. <laughs> no, but I think okay. I can guess what it is. Is it a tree where people leave their pants? That's right. Why would I have seen it? Mm, why it, would you specifically? Is it common in Bolton? It's not a Bolton thing. I bet it's a golf thing. Oh, it's a sporting thing. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was just because James makes a habit of visiting all the weird places in the world. And, <laughs> I, sounds and, weird. and is a pervert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm like Tom Jones and wherever I walk, people just throw pants at me. Oh, and that's I, it. Whenever I'm walking in the forest. <laughs> you are the panty tree, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, it's the reason I asked is because I know James has been on a skiing holiday. Yeah. Oh. But I think you you probably or probably probably all of you guys in metropolitan elites are always skiing. Yeah. Um, but no, apparently it's a thing on for a ski lift because your ski lift goes very high, doesn't it? And it passes over some trees. Mm -hmm. And in some ski resorts, there are trees mm. where people chuck their panties onto oh, the tree. I've seen that, and, it, and right. I thought it was a Mardi Gras thing, and I. 
But there were loads, and there yeah, was loads. like lots of like sparkly, brassy, pantsy. Yeah. Oh my god! And that's a thing. That's a thing, and it's. I think um, they don't love it. The skiing authorities. Why do they care? Bit... I don't I, um... know. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. What's their problem? It must be hard to get your neck. Littering. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It must be hard to get your knickers off on a ski lift, though. Like, that's a tough... I don't think they're doing that, Andy. Because you're wearing, like, your ski suit. Exactly. And, yeah. and you've got to pull difficult. them off and then pull them all over the skis. Exactly. I don't think it's possible. And your skis as well. <laughs> you I... have to take your skis off. They're going to fall. Yeah. No, yeah. I reckon it's a spare pair of pants situation in the pocket, isn't Very it? That probably is it. Or on Very the head. Interesting. Yeah. I um, occasionally have dropped a ski pole when going up on a ski oh, lift, as I'm sure yeah. many people have. And obviously we hire our skis. And then we went back and we said, we dropped our ski pole. Can we pay for this ski pole? They yeah. said, oh, no, don't worry about it. Because at the end of the season, when all the snow melts, someone goes up and collects all of the ski poles Whoa. off and then they just wow. distribute them between all the shops. Brilliant. No nice. way. That's, that's fascinating. That's true, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. What they said. That's, that's really amazing. This was in Italy. Wow. It was fine. Just give us your panties. <laughs> <laughs> give us your panties, mate. In 2016, MPs in the Egyptian parliament attacked each other with shoes. Well, okay. one, one attacked another with a shoe. Um, oh, okay. Which I think is quite sorry. It's <laughs> a big it? drop down from a... A, yeah, a mass sorry. shoe wall. <laughs> no, it wasn't. The other one wasn't quick enough off the mark taking his shoe off. Yeah. He was actually suspended, which I don't know why I sound surprised. I suppose he probably would be from our parliament as well. Did they run with the headline uh, S, open brackets, C, close brackets, Andal? Sandal. Sandal. Sandal, right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Scandal, Sandal. Gosh, yeah. that yeah. took us all a long time, that didn't was, it? Yeah. No, because I suppose it would have been written in Turkish. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like yeah. a very exciting moment. Torfik Okasha was the MP who got attacked by a shoe because he'd had the Israeli envoy round and one of his fellow MPs objected to that and got angry and hit him with a shoe and had to be escorted from the house waving a shoe. I just thought that's a fun addition to parliamentary yeah. goings on if we want to try it out. Yeah. There's a bit of an irony about Queen Victoria throwing the shoes at the Crimean War soldiers, oh, yeah. which is that they had very bad shoe situations when they got to the war. Okay. Wow, I phrased so they that badly. Kept, they should have kept that one but shoe. They <laughs> well, yeah. They had awful boots and they got trench foot. Their feet swelled up in the in the cold. The clothing was completely awful. Sometimes the sole of their shoe would just stick to the mud as they lifted their foot up and the rest of the shoe came and the, the sole was left uh, behind because yeah. the mud oh, right. was so thick and sticky. Rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a horrible time. Yeah, it was a um, tough one. It was a tough war. Oh, <laughs> many of them are. There was a, what were the years, the Crimean War? 1853. Three uh, to six. Yeah, as Anna said. Three to six. Speed up. Three to six. Uh, yeah, <laughs> three to six. Yeah. 1853 to six. Yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> and um, it was a very complicated war. Yeah, it was basically a plus à change about um, the West trying to limit Russian expansionism, wasn't it? It was basically the Ottomans coming up to the north. The yeah. Russians coming out to the West, Britain and France having colonial things that they didn't want to lose, yeah. trying to keep Russia as quiet as possible and decided to get on the side of the um, Ottomans yeah. and then attack the underbelly, which is Crimea. Mm. Yeah. And also there were a lot of Ottomans living in Crimea at the time, so it was a bit of a powder keg anyway. It was, it was a very, very, very complicated situation. Anyway, it started over rights of access to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which ah. I think we've talked about. Isn't that the one where they have the disagreement over the ladder? It is. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. And this was the same thing, basically. Wow. The Ottoman Sultan gave the Catholic priests a key to the church in 
1852. And from that point on, you know, it was like, well, we have to have a war over this. <laughs> and basically, things escalated from there. And then suddenly you have got the Charge of the Light Brigade happening and it's all going disastrously yeah, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Florence Nightingale's having to organise a load of stuff. I mean, lots of famous things came from it, I suppose. Florence Nightingale, yep. Mary Seacole, Charge of the Light Brigade. Three yeah. items of clothing. Balaclava, yep. the um, cardigan. cardigan. Cardigan, Earl of Cardigan. Very heavily involved Ooh, in the Light Brigade. It's got to be a boot. You're, you're not going to get it. Go on, what is it? The Sebastopol hat. <laughs> 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 it's the raglan sleeve shirt. Um, what's a, Yeah, what's that? It's got a different colour of... The torso is a different colour to the sleeves. <laughs> okay, It's right. a baseball jersey. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it... <laughs> General Fitzroy Somerset, the first Baron Raglan, uh, was not wearing a baseball jersey, but right. he did have a Raglan sleeve <laughs> shirt named after him. And he was the one who was responsible for the Charge of the Light Brigade going so badly wrong. Right. He was very old oh. and he was half deaf and he was not really oh. with it. And he said, oh, the Russians are taking some guns over there. Can you go and stop them taking away the guns? And the order was then carried to someone else, mm -hmm. uh, the Earl of Cardigan, who could not see the guns because he was somewhere completely different. And he said, what, those guns? And pointed at this incredibly well-defended yeah. gun emplacement yeah. at the end of a long, narrow valley. Like, just a disastrous place to yeah, attack. Right. And he said, yeah. okay, uh, <laughs> this isn't going to go well, but, but fine. Don and then, Yacardis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His exact words were, here go the last of the Brudenells, because he thought he was just riding straight to certain death, yeah. right. as a lot of the people in, in that charge were. Yeah. Here's another thing that wasn't invented, but someone tried to invent for the Crimea Ooh, War, yeah. which was a entire city-destroying cannon this is a massive cannon. It was 10 meters wide. The, the shot is 10 meters wide. No. The, and it would weigh 550 tons. And the idea is that once it landed, it would demolish an entire city. And it was what? to be called the Saxo Cannon. How are they going to transport that what anywhere? Yeah. What sort of wacky races, like Acme Roadrunner style well, the, cannon they're the making? The inventor was a solid inventor. Was it not Adolf Sax? It was. The was inventor it? of the saxophone <laughs> came up with a city-destroying cannon, which he really wanted to build. He was such a weird guy. He would just he invent these things and then just call it the sax something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, never, it, didn't, it didn't take off? No, it didn't get past the planning stages. No. But that's Shocking. what he wanted to do. Take off. Very nice. Mm. Mm. Um, something else the Crimean War gave us <laughs> yep. is, I think, the earliest war photography, or certainly oh, yeah. some of the earliest war photography. Very famous photo of the Valley of the Shadow of Death by Roger Fenton in 1855, I think is one of the earliest pictures of warfare. Basically, there are two photos of the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Yeah. And... They're both of this extremely barren landscape, very near where the Charge of the Light Brigade was, mm. and gravel, little valley slopes on each side. One of them has some cannonballs on the floor, one of them doesn't. And the famous one is the one with the cannonballs. And it's the, you know, sort of tragedy of war and the emptiness of the landscape with these war weapons. But there's been so much debate over the last um, 150 years over whether he faked it. Like, where do the cannonballs oh. come from? Oh, well... Sacks, I think, uh, prototypes. <laughs> they were his marbles, weren't they? <laughs> um, and we don't know, because it might be that the second photo is from after they'd cleared it up. So then right. he just took another one of it clean. Or he might have be. deposited. Ooh, tricky. The but thing was, because he took a lot of photos, right? He carried, he had a horse and carriage with him, which was like a, um, a portable photo developing booth that he mm -hmm. had with him. Uh, he had lots of glass slides that he had with him, multiple cameras. And everyone's saying, oh, he staged a lot of photos. I think that I think it's more than just the cannonball one. And right. the problem is, is you of course they were staged. Everything had to be staged. Because you needed a long exposure the time. The exposure or... was like 30 seconds. Right. It's actually why the Charge of the Light Brigade was such a disaster. Because they had to wait for <laughs> half a minute for the photo, the team photo at the start. And someone yeah. was blinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you.
Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Hi everyone, we'd like to let you know that this week we're sponsored by Hello Fresh. Wow, I can't count that, but we are. They're fantastic. Hello Fresh send you delicious, wholesome meals in ingredient form. And then you combine them into a delicious meal. You're learning and you're cooking at the same time. Really is incredible. You might have one or two meals that you know how to make that you're kind of quite confident with. But by going with HelloFresh, you'll just have a whole new batch of meals that you'll be able to make from scratch. It's true. HelloFresh has actually introduced me to new spices that I was not previously familiar with. I think one of the meals came with something like za'atar. I probably said it wrong, but it was yummy. And it (laughs) sent me the right amount rather than a large jar, which I was then going to have to force into every single meal for the next (laughs) two months. You can make tasty, healthy the wholesome meals you can avoid the shops we really recommend it absolutely so discover za'ata and other delicious possibilities with hellofresh by visiting hellofresh.co.uk forward slash new fish and when you do that you will get 60 percent off your first order and 25 percent off the next two months that's right hellofresh.co.uk slash new fish 60 off the first box 25 percent off the next two months do it now okay Hey, on with the podcast. On with the show. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is there is a chameleon in Madagascar which is effectively extinct for several months every year. <laughs> this fact is incredible. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. it's really I cool. think it's not true. I think if you're extinct, (laughs) you come back three months later, you're not extinct. Let's debate the case. (laughs) (laughs) And first of all, thanks to Kate Wood, who sent this in, Mm. in the the email, the fish inbox. If I knew it was from you, as opposed to Andy, I wouldn't have poo-pooed it. No, no, no. This is the Laborde's Chameleon, uh, and it is crazy. Right, so November, the chameleon hatches out. Yes. In Madagascar, in uh, the forest. Then they grow to sexual maturity very fast, in about two months they are grown up, ready to breed. They breed. The females lay some eggs in the ground. Then in March, they all die. Oh. All, the the, eggs, the all the adults die. Yeah. There are then, the entire species exists in egg form, basically, for most of the year. In November, eggs hatch out. On they go. It's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. They, they're in, for most of the year. Yeah, they're not extinct exactly, but for most of the year, they are. Not, the species lives in as an egg. Must be weird for the first person to come out of the egg. Yeah. Every year. Oh my yeah. God, yeah. So they, don't, they learn nothing from the, their elders. I just think these are bizarre. These, these were discovered in 2008. I think their life cycle was first reported. I think since then they have found that if you keep some in captivity or maybe under very specific conditions, one might make it through a year. Wow. But it's really, really rare. What so a, it's. What a year 2008 was. Over in India, you had someone being killed on TV with mind power. <laughs> or not. Or not. In Iraq. You had a chameleon being extinct. Or not. In Iraq, George Bush is getting a shoe thrown at him. That wow. did, that... What? What was Anthony Trollope doing that year? <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, they're amazing. And they, they, I think it's because they die to avoid the dry season, which is very harsh and very, very hot All in right. Madagascar. And they just, uh, they, <laughs> some species hibernate. They just decide to die. And lots of chameleons on Madagascar, I think. They've got about... They've got almost half, haven't they? They've got about almost 40, half the species. or something. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary variety of estimates as to the number of chameleon species. Given that it feels like a very small, countable number, <laughs> I read anywhere, and all from like, very reputable sources, anywhere between 134 and more than 217 <laughs> species of chameleon. Well, they're different colours, aren't they? It's very hard <laughs> yeah, to tell. Yeah. You know. That's a good point. Oh, this was a green one before. Oh, is it, <laughs> or is it a different one? <laughs> they're great. Yeah, they don't change their colour to match their background. I actually didn't know that until reading it. 
for this podcast. Right. They match their emotions. Yeah. No, it's. Mm. I think that's amazing. An amazing um, misconception. It's one of the biggest ones we've debunked on QI. You know, sometimes we debunk things that you think, yeah, come on, that's a bit... No, we never do that. No, we, no, we never do that. We never do that. It's an amazing thing. Um, if you were watching the UFC of chameleon battles, right? Yep. Two, two competitors enter the ring. If you were betting, you could probably bet in the last few seconds, if that was allowed, on who was going to win. Hmm. Do they change colour based on whether they think they're going to win or lose? When they pass each other in the street, uh, two males will often change colours to sort of be like, kind of like if you're walking poolside and you tuck your tummy in as oh, you yeah. walk mm. it, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So <laughs> they found when they were studying it that um, the chameleon that was brighter and changed more rapidly was the one who was going to win. And that they just found that that oh. on average was the way that it oh, happened. Wow. Yeah, or above average. So, so what a useful way. If only we could tell them that, then they never have to fight, right? Exactly. They can always just go up to each Stop other and go, match. oh, okay. <laughs> Throw the towel in. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. I mean, if you were a chameleon in a boxing ring or something, because you normally wear a little dressing gown, don't you, into the ring. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as you take your dressing gown off, you look down, you, you were confident until you saw how bright and stripy the other guy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I should just quickly say, it was this was in 2013. It was a guy called Russell Ligon and Kevin McGrew, and they did 45 encounters that they monitored, nice. and that's what they discovered that's from very it. very cool. cool. Yeah. They've got amazing anatomy. They're, I didn't know about the shape of their feet at all. And they are bizarre. They are described often as looking like salad tongs. Oh, yeah. And mm. they do. So uh, there are two pads opposite each other, and in fact, they're the only animals who aren't birds who are zygodactylous, um, which basically means that they have three fingers opposite two fingers in a certain way. And they're not Ooh. the same kind of zygodactylous really as birds. They're their own <laughs> special thing. Mm. And essentially it's to grip trees. I don't know why more things don't have this. So it looks like a sideways claw that just clamps onto trees. It's very clever. But I did I did find out that you can also get pamprodactyly, anisodactyly and schizodactylies Ooh. as well, um, which are in primates, schizodactylies, grasped with their second and third digits. Oh. I'm doing it instead of thumb and finger. Like right. doing scissors, Exa rock, paper, Whoa. scissors. Exactly. Does that free you that. up to hold something like food? You could or do or... like a thumbs up at the same time as holding onto the tree. That's I think that's move. the idea, yeah. And you can yeah. hold a canopy between fingers four and five. Yeah. yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. They're great. I know someone who's got a pet chameleon. Do you? Yeah, Do you? yeah, yeah. And um, is that the end of the anecdote? I think it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm rummaging for more, but that really is about it. It's called Roy. Okay, the oh, there was more. There was more. <laughs> no, and that's the end of the anecdote. Yeah. Um, if you were sitting on a chameleon's tongue when mm. it ate something, food for thought. Yeah, you would die Whoa. so badly really? no no it would just not be able to eat anything because you're way bigger than a chameleon <laughs> if you're sitting on its tongue it's not going to be eating anything sorry you're right you have to imagine that you're the size of a borrower or maybe even smaller oh okay of an ant oh yeah sorry well obviously if you sit on a chameleon's yeah. tongue it'll just crush its tongue because you're human size no, but like, you know, if something bites you, a bite could have venom. And I thought the reveal was going to be the tongue. Would... Sorry, it wasn't. It was the acceleration of their tongues. I should have made clear that you have, you've been shrunken like honey. I yeah, shrunk I the kids in this. I think that was a big essential bit of that story. It was. Yeah, Anna, you've clattered this one. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> like, so... If you were really, really small yeah. and you were sitting on a comedian's tongue yeah. and it stuck it out, then you would definitely die. The acceleration of their tongues are amazing. They're actually the highest acceleration and power output, like amount of power generated for any movement of a reptile, bird or mammal. It is Whoa. insane. Yeah. The power output is 14,000 watts per kilogram. Incredible. Okay. Now, 
Jonas Vingegaard or Teddy Pogacar, who are the best cyclists in the world in the oh, Tour yeah. de France, say, if they're going up a mountain, they can max out at about seven watts per kilogram. And these guys are doing 14,000 watts what? per kilogram. <laughs> it's a lot, right? I can't, I almost can't compute that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, so the G-force yeah. is, I think, the maximum G-force we can survive is maybe nine or ten for a few yeah. seconds, okay. fighter pilots, and the G-force on their tongue would be 264 G. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Your face is being distorted by that. That is so cool. That's incredible. I did, I read a bit about what's, what's inside their tongue, because they have these things called intralingual sheaths, right? Mm. So the tongue has bones running along the core of it, which is weird in itself. Yeah. I guess they don't, mm. not very big bones, but those are covered by these intralingual sheaths and those are covered by an accelerator muscle. And what the chameleon does is the chameleon spring loads the sheaths and packs them into each other like a telescope. That's like there was a toy that used to do that, that you flicked it when you were younger <laughs> and it was telescopic and oh, it expanded cool. out, wasn't there? I've got a real memory of that. that. A telescope? Yeah. I was just playing with a chameleon's tongue when I was younger. You would get like those pointers that teachers had and they would go like that, wouldn't they? Yes. Oh. I got one of those last year. For Christmas. For myself uh, at a non-holiday non time. And uh, God, they're good. Yeah. The you pointers. Them, what, what did you do? Your wife? Do, you just, do you just point at stuff? Yeah. Just walk down the street going, there's a panty tree. It really... <laughs> <laughs> it gives you a kind of authority that... It's extraordinary, you know. <laughs> You've never dared use it here. No, no, no. <laughs> but if I'm in the supermarket and I want to put it something on the uh, conveyor belt, I say, I make sure you apply the discount on that <laughs> radish, my good man. Bleep this one next. <laughs> I'm so oh confused about why you actually I'm so this. confused because all of this sounds so plausible. Yeah, we're just know, missing we're, the one we're detail. We're sort of playing what I like you now, aren't we? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, no, I think, I think it was a couple of years ago. I bought it for a show. Um, but right. I cannot remember the context in which I have, and I've just ended up with a pointer, which I love to get out occasionally. And, you know, right. yeah. So, chameleon saliva. Mm -hmm. This was another fact in the inbox, actually. Yeah. So, not only did Kate Wood send the original fact, but Robert Harding writes, mm -hmm. chameleon saliva is the opposite of custard. Mm. <laughs> it's disgusting on treacle tart. <laughs> uh, is that because it's non-Newtonian, but in a different way? Bingo! Yes. So, so, custard, if you run across custard, as you apply force to it, it gets harder. Very good. That's so it. It thickens on impact. And chameleon saliva is thick in the mouth. But when the tongue strikes the insect it's trying to eat or whatever, mm -hmm. that blob becomes very malleable for an instant. Oh, that's clever. And then hardens right again. Right. So the, the prey is then glued to the tongue. And then it gets whoop, pulled right back into the chameleon's mouth. That's clever. Isn't that amazing? I found a chameleon who was a chameleon before chameleons were chameleons. What? Keep talking. Keep talking. <laughs> I got a headache today. You know I got a headache and this is not helping. There used to be a philosopher called Chameleon. Really? He was a disciple of Aristotle. Was he the guy who came up with the idea of karma? <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, we don't know anything about you're him. You're just going to go straight yeah, I'm just, I'm just, you're, you're ill. You don't know what you're saying. It's... <laughs> Just helping you out here. Um, yeah, no, he uh, is, is a disciple. We know virtually nothing about him, I guess, with us, as with a lot of people then. But he did write a lot of pieces that we do know of his names attached to, like a, a piece called On Drunkenness, a piece called On Pleasure. Um, but mm. virtually nothing is known. But mm. So he lived, he would have died in 281 uh, BC. And the word chameleon came about in roughly the 14th century, mid-14th century. Okay. Mm. Wait, so... To describe the lizard, presumably. To describe the lizard. And what's 
interesting is Aristotle wrote about chameleons, but we just didn't have the word, and he wasn't writing about his mate. So did um, he always have to say, you know, that thing that kind of changes colour <laughs> looks a bit like looks a like gecko. looks like my mate, my disciple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I give you some animals that were thought to be extinct but then aren't? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Canterbury knobbed weevil. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> might just stop there, actually. No, more, more. Uh, the cloaked bee, the dinosaur ant, the terror skink, the Batman river loach, the painted frog, and the Machu Picchu arboreal chinchilla rat, uh, which was found in a tree near Machu Picchu. Right. When they unextincted it. Wow. So are these just all things, was there one big find one day out where they're just all hanging out <laughs> in the same playing cards for a while? It's some sort of like yeah. support group for the extinct who aren't extinct. Yeah. yeah. There's also the confusing rocket frog. That's, crazy. And, That's a great name. And they found it in 2019 and it's called confusing because it looks a lot like other frogs, but it's the confusing rocket frog. And the interesting thing about this is it was thought to be extinct in 1985. They found it in 2019, but luckily it was in a place where they were about to do loads of mining and logging oh, and stuff like that. Yeah. And it meant that they couldn't do any of it. Brilliant. I think it's in Ecuador. Nice. That's well great. Done, little rocket frog. The painted frog? Was that one that you said? Painted frog, yeah. Yeah. Which just sounds like uh, someone forcing chameleonism onto <laughs> animals. <laughs> That's very interesting. There's a type of fish that was thought to have gone extinct 66 million years ago, and then it was found in 1938. And it's the coelacanth. And the, do you know the story of how it was rediscovered? Is it it's a so military cool. 38? Is it a, was it found... No, no, just by found by a fisherman. No, okay, just found okay. by a normal fisherman in South Africa, okay. caught a weird fish, got back, gave it to this woman who ran the museum who thought that's weird. So she sketched oh, it. Oh, I remember, yeah, yeah. It's this amazing thing. So she sketched it and she sent it to Professor Smith, who she knew would be able to tell her what it was. Professor Smith receives her sketch, knows straight away, this is a coelacanth. It's been 66 million years. We thought it was gone. Um, and he goes and he visits it, but it's kind of disintegrated by that point. So he can't, and he can't confirm really that lots about it or where it came from. And he devoted the next 14 years to finding a second specimen. <laughs> wow. He was desperate. And eventually uh, there was a guy on the, uh, one of the Comoros Islands off Mozambique in 1952 who found one. And Smith was managed to convince the South African government to get a military plane mm -hmm. to fly him to off the coast of Mozambique. He had to have a conversation with the Mozambique authorities saying, hey, we're flying military planes over your airspace. Really sorry. <laughs> wow. They were like, why are you doing that? They said, we're just going to pick up a fish. I remember reading that story and I think the woman who found it in the first place and knew there was something up, mm. I think it was either Smith or someone else said it was evidence of women's intuition. The greatest evidence we ever had of women's intuition. Really? Yeah, yeah, Marjorie yeah. Courtney Latimer, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. What, just because she sensed that she this just is knew weird. That there was something going on? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, That's proving two things with one fish. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Not only do we have the fish, we now know about women's intuition. <laughs> what a happy day for the world. <laughs> I'd love it if this paper, which eventually came out, was about women's intuition, not about the fish. Yeah. <laughs>
Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our social media accounts. I'm on Instagram. Just use Schreiberland. Uh, James? I'm on Twitter. Just use at James Harkin. Andy? I'm on X. At Andrew Hunter M. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And uh, Anna, how can they get through to us as a group? You can just use the email address podcast at qi.com or the Twitter handle at no such thing. That's right. Or you can head to our website, which is no such thing as a fish.com. All of the previous episodes are up there, so do check them out. Otherwise, come back next week because we'll be here with another episode and we'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>